We'll start with the debrief, GPR's roundup of this week's news stories. News director Eric Newman joins reporters Roman Battaglia and Jane Vaughn to discuss new management at the VA healthcare system in Roseburg, a scan for forever chemicals in Redding's water, and a proposal to protect newts that only live in Crater Lake. Welcome, debriefers. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Roman, we're going to start with you. Uh, you've been on the DEA beat this week. <laughs> um, so 24 people were arrested on Tuesday in what is a suspected drug trafficking ring that was operating out of Grants Pass. Tell us what we know about this story right now. Yeah, so there was an announcement that was on Wednesday um, from the DEA, the Grants Pass Police Department, and the... Oregon State Police, along with a bunch of other groups, but those were the three main people that were involved in this. Um, essentially, um, they say they've stopped a drug trafficking ring that was mostly based in Grants Pass, but kind of operated all around the Rogue Valley. Hmm. Um, they seized a bunch of stuff. They seized 37 firearms, including what they say was a grenade and what I think is a flintlock, which is, it looks like a pirate's pistol, basically. I'm like, <laughs> where's someone getting this? It's very weird. But um, they also seized 40 pounds of meth, 9 pounds of fentanyl, which the DEA says is enough to kill 144,000 people. Um, so a lot of this dangerous drug that has been, you know, really hurting a lot of people in the southern Oregon region. There's a lot, you know, there's this opioid overdose crisis that we're having, and a lot of deaths have happened over this year. Um, so that's kind of what we've found out from this. Right. So your story also mentioned recent criticisms about the Drug Enforcement Administration uh, by local law enforcement in Oregon, as well as Oregon Senator Ron Wyden. Where where do those criticisms fit into this story? Yeah, so Wyden had criticized the DEA last month for what he said for being virtually non-existent in Southern Oregon. He had met with um, local law enforcement here and with the DEA official um, last month, and I was there where they talked about you know the need for more federal help in the region, especially with this opioid crisis. Um, the Medford Police Chief Justin Ivins told me you know they've been extremely active before, but they've kind of disappeared, um, uh, and that's kind of forced. Medford and other law enforcement to look elsewhere for help. So, you know, they've gotten help from the FBI, um, but, you know, having the DEA is helpful, Ivan has said, because they have national information on these drug trafficking operations that they can share, you know, stuff the FBI or local law enforcement might not have. So, you know, Wyden has been kind of publicly calling for action from the DEA for about a month. He sent them a letter and has now apparently been talking with DEA officials. So we have the situation where Wyden has said the DEA has not been active in Southern Oregon with these big you know, serious concerns about uh, illicit opioids here. Uh, but then we have the DEA who say they've been working on this drug bust for the past 18 months. So was Wyden wrong or were they were they actually active in Southern Oregon? Yeah, that's the first thing I thought about when I heard this was I saw this like drug, you know, bust announcement that they had made from the DEA. And I was like, is this related? Like, is this because Wyden has been calling for the DEA and they're just kind of like, posturing and showing that they're there. But, um, you know, someone did ask that question in the press conference yesterday. Um, according to Police Chief Justin Ivins from Medford, it sounds like, you know, local law enforcement in Grants Pass and Josephine County have been helping the DEA with investigations and have kind of had more resources to help them. Um, you know, but he told me that like Medford and Jackson County have more resources themselves to go it alone. So, you know, the DEA was extremely active in Southern Oregon. And 
I don't know if it was priorities or whatever it was, but as, as time has gone on here, they were down to one agent out of the Southern Oregon office. Yeah, so Medford has their own special team to do these drug investigations, and they work with the sheriff's office, um, whereas Grants Pass um, has kind of been working with the DEA and helping them with those investigations. Um, Wyden has told me, you know, conversations with the DEA have been productive. He talked with the administrator and Milgram, um, and basically they've been saying they're putting Southern Oregon back on the radar again in the DEA's mind. Um, And so there were a couple things that he said they've kind of taken away. The DEA has said they're going to beef up staffing in the Rogue Valley. They're going to increase communication with local law enforcement, like having a dedicated phone line to like talk with the DEA about these issues or Hmm. ask for help or whatever if they need help for big operations, which is the last thing, which is going to improve access to these, I think what Wyden called standby agents to help with these large operations like the raid that happened this week where they need a lot of, you know, federal people and a lot of law enforcement helping to like, you know, raid somewhere or arrest a lot of people. Um, so we don't, but we don't really know how many staff, we don't know when they'll really be here. You know, Wyden says there's training that has to happen, which could take months. And the DEA hasn't really promised specifics in terms of like the number of staff that they'll have on the ground. But it seems like everyone was optimistic about these discussions. Okay. Thanks, Roman. Jane, we'll turn to you now. You recently visited the Roseburg Veterans Affairs Medical Center. Uh, you interviewed the new, newish executive director mm-hmm. at the Roseburg VA. Um, why did you speak with him? So his name is Patrick Hull, and he was, like you said, hired back in the spring. So he's, you know, newish. I think he was uh, began in April, so he's, you know, seven months in. Um, and I wanted to check in with him just to see about how his first few months have been going, what his goals are for for his role, and things like that. Um, basically, because there have been some problems at the Roseburg VA in recent years. Their uh, intensive care unit was closed back in 2009. In 2019, they shifted their emergency department to a weekday urgent care clinic. Um, they're also implementing a new medical record system, which some veterans have been um, frustrated by, but lack of functionality, they say. Um, And then last November, a year ago, there was a a vote in Douglas County, and over 90% of residents voted to restore full medical services to the VA, um, and I guess are, you know, unhappy with the the level of care that the veterans are receiving there. So basically just wanted to check in. He's coming in into a new role and and see how things are going. Gotcha. So did you get any kinds of details about what's going to change with this new leadership at the Roseburg VA? Sort of, some things. Um, not not a ton of specifics. He says there's a new strategic planning process underway. He says he's having discussions um, with veterans groups about the level of care that they're receiving at the facility. I think the meeting is in January. He's going to have a big, long meeting with the veterans to talk about that. Um, he did talk a lot about sustainability, staff turnover. He said there's sort of a churn of staff where they're kind of, you know, revolving door and staff are going in and out. And so they're trying to uh, fix that. Um, And so he said that they've, you know, hired two new chiropractors and they're going to um, have a... um, new program for new graduates so that hopefully they won't leave. There's a new mentoring program so that they can, um, they've had some sort of turnover from new staff. So he didn't have any specifics on the intensive care unit or the emergency department. So we'll have to see what actually changes. Okay, great. Um, So you also uh, covered a story this week about a species of newt that only lives in Crater Lake. Why are newts in the news right now? <laughs> so it's called the Crater Lake Newt, and they are native to the lake. So they, you know, develop there, and they only exist in this lake, wow. not anywhere else. Um, they're wow. also known as the Mazama Newt, and they're sort of part of a, a subspecies of the rough skin Newt, which are, are more common. 
but they're threatened. And so this week, the Center for Biological Diversity, which is an environmental nonprofit, filed a legal petition asking the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to grant protections for these newts under the Endangered Species Act. So that's the goal. Okay. So why are the newts so threatened? <laughs> yeah, because of signal crayfish, um, ah. which were <laughs> introduced to the lake back in 1915, and they were meant to be food for the fish, which were themselves not native to the lake. The fish were introduced in the late 1800s for tourists. So we introduced the fish, <laughs> and then we need food for the fish, which is the crayfish, and now the crayfish it's, are killing the newts. It's what? real life, give a mouse a cookie. Yeah. <laughs> So it's kind of ironic. Um, so the crayfish eat the newts. They eat the newts' food. They're competing for habitat. Um, the newts are basically used to being top of the food chain. They are used to not having any predators, so they haven't developed any protections from the crayfish. Um, and it has been, you know, an okay balance for a while. Like I said, the crayfish were introduced in 1915. But with climate change, the lake has been warming, which the crayfish really love, so their population has been exploding. Hmm. So the balance is off, and they're pushing the newts out. Um, the crayfish currently occupy up to 95% of the lake shoreline. They're wow. predicted to have all of it in as little of, of two years. So time is really important for the for the newts. Um, and also, if that's not enough, the crayfish are really um, threatening the clarity of the lake as well, which is one mm. of the big things, obviously, that Crater Lake is, is known for because the crayfish eat the lake's invertebrates, which eat plankton, and so then, therefore, the algae growth increases in the lake and it becomes less visible and clear in the beautiful Crater Lake that we all wow. love. Quite a little microcosm of yeah. chains of events. So what would this Endangered Species Act protection do for the this potential recovery or efforts to help the newts? Yeah, so they have 90 days to respond um, with an indication of whether or not the newts might warrant a listing under the ESA. Um, like I said, the, the petition was only submitted yesterday, so they've got 90 days. And then the goal if they get the ESA protections would be to have money for crayfish removal efforts, which they're apparently pretty hard to get rid of, and then also help create a comprehensive recovery plan to help the, the poor newts. Mm, okay. <laughs> uh, one last story that you, Jane, were covering this week was um, a planning commission meeting in, with Humboldt County. So basically Humboldt County uh, is has been working on this long-term plan to try to regulate short-term rentals, things like Airbnbs and VRBOs. What, why, why is that coming up right now? Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty common problem, I think, in, in most places <laughs> out here. There's a lack of housing supply. There's rising housing costs. And so that's a big problem. Um, residents say that they're concerned about the lack of housing options for people who actually live and work in the counties rather than visitors. They say that these short-term rentals are negatively impacting their neighborhoods. And so Humboldt County's Planning Commission has been working since September to try to create a short-term rental ordinance um, to regulate these things like Airbnbs and, and VRBOs. Um, it would only apply to the unincorporated areas of the county, which if you look at a map is actually not a ton of the county, but obviously mm -hmm. is important for the people who, who live there. And the goals are basically to minimize the impacts that these short-term rentals have on local housing and then also preserve the neighborhood character, as the neighbors say they want that. So what would this ordinance do? It has a lot of stuff in it. Um, basically, the goal is to try to regulate the growth of the short-term rentals and preserve the housing options for, for the local um, residents and, and trying to address, you know, a lot of people see this as a problem. So it creates two tiers of rental units. One would be for renting part of a unit and one is for renting the whole unit. They're proposing a cap of 2%. Um, that's how much 
the housing stock could be short-term rentals mm-hmm. in the Humboldt Bay area specifically. So that'd be a cap of 2% in the Humboldt Bay area. Currently, short-term rentals are about 1.66% of the housing stock nation, uh, sorry, countywide, not nationwide. And then they have some other things about, you know, it, uh, you can't have more than three um, parcels with short-term rental permits. That applies to both individuals or businesses. There's a cap on that. Um, they're establishing criteria for short-term rentals, like noise and parking and all these things that are sort of, you know, being a good neighbor and taking care of the short-term rental. So there's a lot of different stuff in there. It all is still proposed and not finalized at this point. And then they also have separate ordinances for the inland and coastal areas as well. Okay. So they're working through the process with this. What did they, they, they met again last night to kind of revisit this topic. What did they decide at Thursday's meeting? Not much. So yeah, they met last night. They're supposed to work on this ordinance. Um, it was a long night. They basically have a hard out at 930 and they didn't get to it until 910. <laughs> and so they basically just did public comment and that's it. A um, couple people commented. One person owns a short-term rental and they said the income's been really helpful for them. Other people say the county shouldn't have short-term rentals at all. Hmm. They're losing housing to short-term rentals. So they basically continued the rest of the agenda to their next meeting on November 30th. They're supposed to provide a recommendation for the Board of Supervisors and the Board of supervisors will be the ones to um, finally adopt the, the ordinance. Okay, thanks, Jane. Sure. Um, Roman, we'll turn back to you. We just have uh, two minutes left, but um, you did a story this week about what initially seemed like a, like scary news about the water supply in Reading that ended up being kind of a false alarm. What's going on? Yeah, basically, uh, some new EPA data came out last week that showed, you know, a lot of water systems in the U.S. have tested really highly for levels of what's called PFAS chemicals. Mm-hmm. And Redding ended up being on that list. It showed that they had 300% the recommended level of these chemicals. Wow. So what is PFAS? Um, they're called, they're also called forever chemicals. They base, they're kind of known for their durability and nonstick properties, but they last a long time in the environment. Um and are really hard to break down. And they've been linked to, you know, cancer and other problems and can kind of accumulate in the body. So they're a little dangerous. So what does that mean for Redding? Like, do they have safe water or are there PFAS chemicals in there? Exactly. That's the thing is there isn't actually PFAS in the water right now. Um, They tested for this stuff in March and they pound these PFAS chemicals mostly in just one singular well, um, which was shut down in September right after they confirmed everything. Um, Yeah, so... There really isn't any PFAS. Okay. Um, So how did this false alarm happen in the first place? You know, it's kind of funny. Um, It it seems like the hypothesis from the water manager that I talked to in Reading um, thinks that it could be a small piece of plastic or Teflon tape that just kind of came off the pump that's submerged in the well. And because they test these chemicals in really small amounts, just a small little piece of plastic leaching a small amount of these chemicals can be detected. Um, And so, you know, he says they fished out some of the tape from the well, but it's still offline right now. And it's a very small well. It just doesn't produce a lot. And so it's not likely to contribute a lot to the water supply anyways. Okay. Thanks, Roman. That's a relief. Um, So that's going to do it for the debrief this week. Thank you for listening. You can reach out to our newsroom with comments about our coverage or suggestions of things that you think we should be covering. Uh, There's a news tip line on our website at ijpr.org. You can find this program and more on our website at jeffexchange.org. 